Everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, a national day of mourning, remembrance of those ancestors who came before us and that were involuntary participants in settler colonial acts of violence as it pertains to the mythology that Americans celebrate called the Thanksgiving Day Holiday. We'll unpack the mythology with two distinguished elders on this National Day of Mourning here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright The lone blue elk in the black of the night You can hear, you can hear The whisper in the valley mm-hmm. And you know when come a Today on American Indian Airwaves, the National Day of Mourning, as we recognize the indigenous peoples who were involuntary participants in various settler colonial acts of violence, and how the Wampanoag peoples connect to this mythology surrounding the Thanksgiving Day holiday celebrated by Americans throughout the country. Today on American Indian Airwaves, we have the honor and pleasure of speaking with two distinguished indigenous elders. Georgiana Sanchez from the Chumash Nation is an essayist, poet, cultural bearer, elder, and activist. And George Tink Tinker from the Osage Nation is a longtime indigenous activist, scholar, and professor at the Illiff School of Theology. We'll hear from both of them regarding their words, insights, and meanings surrounding this settler colonial day known as the Thanksgiving Day holiday. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves, and now Georgiana Sanchez on this National Day of Mourning and dismantling the mythology of the Thanksgiving Day holiday. I thought uh, that I would start out with... uh a poem that I wrote several years ago when they uh, were uh, celebrating the um, the birthday of the Statue of Liberty. And they had appropriated all kinds of monies to uh, re- re- refurbish her and fix her up. And um, I, as a little girl, uh, she intrigued me. I think uh, to some degree with my childhood innocence, uh, something of what she symbolized as Miss Liberty uh, was something that I valued very highly. So she was someone very special to me. But as I got older, I uh, began to question what she stood for. And um, I always start with a disclaimer when I read this poem, though, Larry, because my father raised us uh, to know that you do not turn away anyone, uh, animal or human, who is hungry or needs shelter. You are you. You have to be there for them. So, I'm going to open with the words of Emma Lazarus, 
uh, words that I believe in and that I was raised with also with the, the philosophy behind the words. And it's not all, but it's just those, those few words by Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Hey, Miss Liberty, how come you always got your back to me, your face turned toward the sea, asking for the poor, huddled homeless who yearn to breathe free? We know about that, too, and we don't turn away no hungry, huddled, either. That Plymouth was just one place in time the history books got hold of, and Tisquantum was a real man who got kidnapped off to sea to be made slave in Malaga, escaped, came home, but his village was gone, wiped out by the white man's disease. Even so, he couldn't turn his back on the poor, hungry, huddled. Those pilgrims were real grateful, took away his real name, and now he's trotted out each Thanksgiving like some cartoon dodo. But Tisquantum was a real man. And what about the homeless tempest-tossed? Here in our own land, we know about that, too. Man, that is just one big trail of tears. Like the 5,000 Cherokees uprooted, 15,000 Creeks uprooted, 7,000 Chickasaws uprooted, the Choctaw Nation uprooted, taken to Indian Territory, Oklahoma, where the Cheyenne sickened of malaria and dreamed of the north and pine trees rustling in the wind. And what about the forced long walk of the Navajo to the concentration camp of Bosque Redondo, where the Mescalero Apaches had already been interned as prisoners of war? And altogether, thousands and thousands and thousands never made it. The small ones, the old people, and nearly every baby died. But what are numbers? One dead baby is too many. Yes, Miss Liberty, we know about being homeless, tempest-tossed. And each relocation, each reservation was a killing compromise we took to survive. And as for wretched refuse, turn around and take a look at your cities with their relocates, not our refuse, since there aren't enough survivors left to be teeming excess for refuse. And the trail of tears continues. So, hey, Miss Liberty, how come you always got your back to me, asking for the people who yearn to breathe free? I guess you never heard of Chief Joseph of the Nez Perce, or Bigfoot, whose heart is buried in a mass grave at Wounded Knee, or Pope of the Pueblos, Tecumseh, Shawnee, Red Jacket, Seneca, Manolito, Navajo, Osceola, Seminole, Captain Jack, Modoc, Black Hawk, Second Fox, Black Kettle, Cheyenne, Redbird, Winnebago, Satank and Satanta, Kiowa, or Toipurina, the warrior woman of the Tongva, Juana Parker and Ten Bears Comanche, Cochise and Jeronimo Apache, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse Sioux. And what about Dennis Banks, Chippewa, who had to run for sanctuary to Onondaga land, or Leonard Peltier, Sioux, who dreams behind bars in Leavenworth of the eagle gliding high and free above the earth? Yes, Miss Liberty. 
We know about yearning to breathe free. But hey, Miss Liberty, I hear you had a birthday. With your new nose job and $66 million plus face left, you're looking real good. They say you'll last a thousand years. That's still not as long as the Pueblo of old Oribe. And the Hopis say the sun is getting darker. Better hold that lamp of freedom high. But if the darkness comes, we'll keep that dream alive. Freedom is indigenous like us. An old, old song we don't forget. We'll keep on singing it. Our drums will carry it to the four directions. In the darkness, our dances will renew the earth. Yes, Miss Liberty, freedom is an old, old song we don't forget. We'll keep that song alive forever, and you can count on it. Thank you. Very beautiful. And... Um, it's interesting uh, in reading that poem because as indigenous people, you know, we truly are exiled in our own land. And so, uh, you know, the freedom of what liberty w is supposed to symbolically represent is still very much um, a vision and um, a way of life that we, that we pursue and constantly pursue in our struggle to preserve our very existence. Yes. And it's an uh, appropriate poem, too, with uh, the coming up of Thanksgiving uh, this n next week. Uh, a lot of families will be getting together and, and, um, and feasting. And, um, and with that, uh, coming of the holiday of Thanksgiving is a lot of people's um, misperceptions of, uh, of Indian people and uh, the institutionalized version of Thanksgiving Day. So I was wondering if maybe um, maybe we could just go back to the actual um, first Thanksgiving and what Thanksgiving actually uh, actually is, and um, and uh, and then talk about what Thanksgiving um, is now, how it's been uh, institutionalized, uh, as I always say, by the dominant society or the predominant society, and and how we as Indian people have um, been literarily colonized and embedded in the past and, f and forgotten about. Um, but it's interesting uh, when we talk about Thanksgiving in that Thanksgiving um, actually was practiced, um, or the, the idea of feasting uh, and Thanksgiving was practiced by a lot of the Algonquian people in the Northeast, and they actually celebrated the equivalent of six Thanksgivings. You know, the first one being, you know, maple syrup uh, ceremony, the second one being the planting feast, um, the third being the strawberry festival, you know, the summer brought the green corn festival, and then the fifth one was the Harvest Festival, which took place uh, right around November. And then the last, uh, you know, midwinter ceremony, you know, giving thanks for, uh, you know, for the closing of the year. Um, so if we can talk, go back, to, uh, you know, to when, uh, to that time frame back in the 1600s and maybe talk a little bit about um, what actually took place uh, um, in history as opposed to uh, what a lot of people are taught in the public school system, you know, 
the um, romanticized imagery of Indian people, um, you know, of pilgrims, you know, the men, you know, sitting down and eating happily, um, you know, with the pilgrims at that time. So maybe we could just talk a little bit and elaborate on that. Well, something that I see as an instructor working with uh, people throughout the years and just being out in the community that... Um, my dad used to say that uh, that the dominant American society had a collective unconscious guilt, uh, even though they don't deal with it on a conscious level. That it, at a deep, deep level, there is a a sorrow and a and a, and, a, and a deep guilt and probably even a sense of shame about what happened to the native uh, the peoples, the original peoples of this land. And so I think that images, stereotypical images, like I say, you know, Tisquatamus trotted out each Thanksgiving like some cartoon dodos, oversimplified, romanticized ideas of Native people and the colonists, because I think it sort of assuages those kinds of guilt uh, feelings or feelings of uh, uh, that they probably, a lot of people don't even uh, address as far as the sorrow and the, the tragedy that happened to Native peoples. So uh, what's, what's, what's very interesting to me is that people forget about Native peoples all year long. And then around November, we start getting calls from schools, from organizations wanting us to do a presentation uh, for their organizations or their schools as regards to Native American people. And, uh, and usually it's along those stereotypical romanticized sort of lines that they want us to somehow affirm uh, that Old, that, that, that mythology that's become part of the uh, official myth of uh, the, the founding of this of this uh, in these United States. Uh, so, but I, and I think that the images get uh, construed because I think that first uh, uh, Thanksgiving dinner, which was really like the fifth, right, the harvest <laughs> dinner, the harvest <laughs> feast, um, that uh, some of the imagery comes from the Jamestown colony, which was a business venture. There were no pilgrims or Puritans there. And uh, so they sort of combine images from different parts of, of history, and then they uh, sort of, they've come up with this uh, sort of official myth about the first Thanksgiving. But I mean, we both know that the Thanksgiving, official Thanksgiving Day that became, began to be institutionalized was really proclaimed by the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1637 to commemorate the massacre of 700 men, women, and children who were celebrating their annual green corn dance. And that, which was th a Thanksgiving Day to them, as you, as you stated earlier. And um, uh, so for 100 years, every Thanksgiving Day, uh, was ordained by the governor was in honor of that of that so-called bloody victory, thanking God that the battle had had been won. So um, you know, there's. Uh You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with longtime Indigenous scholar, activist, cultural bearer, and elder Georgiana Sanchez from the Shumash Nation on this National Day of Mourning and dismantling the mythology surrounding the Thanksgiving Day holiday. And now back to the interview. We in Indian country, you know, uh, I think Thanksgiving Day for me at my home with my children becomes a time to, um, to uh, uh, a renewal of our sense of... Um, uh, of our sense of ourselves as native peoples it's a good time for our younger children because they come home with the the pilgrim outfits and the the, right. the feathers and all that stuff for us to begin to clarify 
mm. historically what happened as far as Thanksgiving. So, uh, it, but every year, it's like, you know, you have to re-educate every year. And even our own little children are coming up through the public school systems. We have to do that every year. So it becomes a day of um, education and prayer and um, reaffirming, you know, ourselves as sovereign people. We're always trotted out. Um, in November to reaffirm, you know, this mythology, you know, in the master narrative, you know, as being embedded in the past. And, but yet we have to continue to educate, you know, our own children um, to clarify, you know, truth from fiction, as well as go out and try to um, clarify um, people's, um, uh, you know, indoctrination of that myth. Going back to the early 1600s, I'm, I'm, I'm people, um, you know, people learn about history and about Indian people. Um, it's always within the context of exploring, you know, the wild frontier. Um, you know, again, Indian people portrayed as being the uh, wild or the noble savage. You know, and it's really a, a hard, it's hard to dislodge from that as, as in terms of existing as indigenous people. And it's hard, as you mentioned, when we go out um, to try to educate people, you know, around Thanksgiving time. Even, I kind of wonder, you know, even Halloween, because you still see the Halloween costumes of Indian people. So it, it's almost like four weeks of... Uh, <laughs> of four, and for people in any country, they know they, what we mean by the four weeks of, uh, you know, of this, you know, dealing with this, um, of this myth uh, or, you know, this perpetuation of stereotypes um, by non-Indian people. But what actually, uh, what actually took place in the early 1600s? Can you go back and kind of um, give people um, an overview of what led up to be the Thanksgiving meal that people always actually think of or that's covered in, um, in the history books or on television? Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? As I said before, the Jamestown colony, which was really a colony, which was a business venture, that might that might be the source of the tradition uh, of um, under the leadership of Native peoples under the leadership of Powhatan, joining with the early settlers uh, for dinner and helping those settlers during the winter. I mean, there's documented um, uh, accounts of that where they say that the people came and helped them and brought them food, and it was pretty. I, you know, from my understanding and from my research, it was a pretty miserable beginnings there at Jamestown, but there were no pilgrims or Puritans there at Jamestown. So you know, so the present Thanksgiving as an official holiday I mean probably I mean that stereotypical time is pro the, 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 the present Thanksgiving Day as an official holiday probably roots in the Pequot massacre that we were talking about earlier uh, during the green, their uh, green corn festival uh, but the imagery is of Jamestown where the people were helped but with pilgrim images used so you can see how it's really confusing and uh, by 1620, the communication barrier had already been broken between people, uh, between English-speaking colonists and Native Americans. And there were several Natives who did speak English. And Tisquantum, the people that you know, is, uh, most people know as Squanto, uh, was one of those. And he was, a, as, as the poem states, was what, a group of about 20 people who were seized and who were uh, by an English trader in 1614 and taken to Malaga in Spain just to be sold. And of course, he escaped. And, uh, I, you know, I always, um, whether good or bad, I marvel at the great souledness, the magnanimity of the man. Because after having suffered 
uh, he could not allow others to suffer. You know what I mean? He ended up becoming, uh, uh, you know, despite his hardships at the hands of the English, his ability uh, to speak English substantially eased matters for uh, the pilgrims of Plymouth. So that kind of magnanimity, but you find the stories like that over and over and over uh, throughout the uh, interactions, you know, uh, with the uh, first uh, uh, colonists who came here. And then the resistance began when I think our people began to see that uh, they didn't just want that little piece of land or that little piece to sit down on at the end of the log. They just kept scooting over, scooting over, wanting more land, more territory. One of the things, too, that people, uh, that metaphysical justification for the taking over of our lands, it's like this, the, the myth has it that there were not very many people here when they came. And there, of course, we know that in the Americas there were millions of people and the eastern seaboard where this whole Thanksgiving story takes place was one of the most populous areas the eastern seaboard and the western seaboard I mean there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and so that uh, but people like to think that they came to this empty land that no one was using <laughs> and if they were using it they were using it properly right and so uh, so therefore um, they were justified and mandated by God to you know, take this land. Um, so, uh, and, I, and I think that stories like the Thanksgiving myth that's told uh, uh, somehow uh, comforts uh, some of the, uh, the descendants of those, uh, of the colonists or the dominant society. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not too sure what it does psychologically, but it se they seem to need to have that story. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned about um, Tisquantum, or as people know as uh, Squanto, and I, I wanted to frame this in a cultural context from an um, indigenous perspective, was despite all of his hardships, his uh, family, his clan, and his village being wiped out, that he still gave and he still, you know, helped those uh, colonists at um, Plymouth to tillage land, how to learn, teach them how to tillage land and how to survive, um, is that he still gave. And that's something uh, when we think of Thanksgiving that's brought up, that it's a time of giving to provide food for those that are less fortunate. And, and the truth is, um, it seems like, you know, culturally as Indian people, you know, we always gave food. Yes. You know, even for those that were less fortunate, our brothers or sisters or a stranger um, that came to the door, right. no matter how little we had, right. we still, we gave exactly. them food first yes. before we ate. Yes, yes. And, uh, and, and, and often gave from our want instead of our plenty, yeah. you know what I mean? So that uh, if there was very little to share amongst your family, you found a way and you shared with people. So as I said, that's why I think the words uh, that of Emma Lazarus that I read at the beginning of the poem was, um, I love them because they were the philosophy of my father. You don't turn away people, you, you know. Hey baby, I just got back from town Where the bribes are paid And if turn my offer down this is Larry Smith for Coyote Radio and American Airwaves. I'm here with um, Chumash Elder and uh, scholar Georgiana Sanchez. And the hawks, and the judges, and the mob. Sir, 
like to uh, perhaps read another poem at this point? You know, um, so much of the education of our children, especially around this time when everybody seems to be sending them home from school with all kinds of mixed messages, uh, it has a lot to do with our identity and affirming that identity. And as a California native, my mother is Tohono Odom and Pima. Uh, from Arizona. My father was a Chumash elder born in 1898 and uh, just an incredible man. And because of the history of California, uh, particularly here in Southern California where we're from, uh, which our territory was from, um, for those of people who don't know out there, from uh, around Morro Bay, uh, anthropologists say down to Malibu, but we say down into the San Fernando Valley and probably beyond that. Uh, but uh, uh, so, you know, our, our homeland is now some of the most expensive real estate in Southern California. But this is our homeland. And even though we are, for the most part, a disenfranchised people in our own homeland, uh, we come with a particular history because California, as you know, had been part of Spain, had taken over, colonized by Spain, and then also then became part of Mexico. So there is this, this uh, sort of Hispanic sort of flavor to a lot of the... Uh, California people, sometimes you'll even see it in our names uh, and our, um, 
sometimes they were given to us in baptism, things like that. But anyway, this poem uh, deals with identity issues as being a California Indian. And I usually like to start it out because there's a an old um, Spanish California waltz that my dad used to like, love to play. And when he was dying, we, we thought it would make him happy if he could hear some of these songs. But he asked us to turn them off because it made him sad. So when I treat, read this poem, sometimes I'll 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 play that the, the music, but I'll I'll just sort of hum it a little bit and then get into it. And before I start, I just wanted people to know out there that uh, this is called "People of the Dawn Horse," and the uh, the Dawn Horse was the term that um, uh, uh, people who study ancient remains and all that that the earliest fossil remains of the horse called the Dawn Horse have been found here in North America. So that uh, the imagery comes from that "People of the Dawn Horse." The old California walls that my dad would sing would be, we used to go, La dum, da dum, da dum, da da la dum, la 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 da dum, la la da la da, la da la da 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 da. I can see him, feel him still, my father, thin, old, frail. Sitting beside me in the blue van, his white hair touched by the wind as we drive toward Santa Barbara and the local consul of the Chumash Nation. His brown hands paint pictures in the air as he tells me of his father, how his father rode a horse from Yorba Linda at sunset, old California waltzes fading behind him as he rode north, arriving in Santa Barbara at dawn. And always, always my father tells me of the land, of oak trees on hillsides, lavender trails of wild lupin, and summer nights under the stars. No wonder, no wonder the Spaniards wanted it, the land even now so beautiful, the golden hills velvet green in springtime, the distant mountains all shades of blue, blue blending into sky, sky blending into ocean, ocean waves breaking into foam and sea mist along the miles and miles of coastland. No wonder my father cried when he remembered, when he told us goodbye before dying, the land as much his bones, muscle, and heart as we were. This is my homeland. As surely as it was my father's, this land called Southern California, ancient home of the Chumash, of our neighbors, the Tongva, called Gabrieño, for the mission San Gabriel. Southern California, homeland of the Ahachimem, Payunkachum, Kumiai, Kawia, Serrano, Cupeño, Yokats, Tataviam, Kitanimuk, Chimewevi, Mojave, and Quichan. This is not a litany of the dead, though our dead do bless this sacred land. The missions of California are a graveyard, thousands and thousands of natives buried in unmarked graves, my own great-grandmother buried beneath the parking lot of the mission Buenaventura. I breathe for the dead, and I wonder some would call me Mestiza, mixed blood, for some distant Spaniard who took our women as surely as he took the land and tried to kill our language. No. 
When the horses escaped from the hands of the Spaniards, they ran, manes flying free across the land that had formed their bones eons before, hoofs conforming again to the canyons, mountains, and plains, Spanish in name, but the draw of bone, muscle, and heart, pulling away from the illusion, horses galloping home. And now, the new millennium, and still the questions of origin and identity gallop across the landscape, the mindscape trapped in semantic draped stories of conquest, of Spanish blood naming the child, ignoring the song of the land. They would make me a hyphen, like they tried to make my husband, my husband with the smooth brown skin I love to touch, who comes from a people running free in the mountains of Chihuahua, the Tarumar, who traded with my mother's people, the Tohono O'odham, before the government border cut us off, renamed us. They would make my husband a stranger to himself. I will not be a hyphen. I refuse to be a victim or a slave. The land has named me, claims me to myself. I am alive, and so are my children and my children's children with the land we endure. It is a new dawn, and the horse is home. Thank you. Beautiful. That ties in um, with what you mentioned earlier about um, you know Thanksgiving Day as for Indian people having to reaffirm our identity and our our existence as First People and um, very much appropriate on that. Yeah, and and sometimes it's uh, having to um, uh, deal with um, your traditional Thanksgiving feast, and which uh, we do have. In our, in our family, a lot of our Native people don't. Maybe it's a form of whatever, whatever they don't, but we do. And our children know that all the food that we eat is food that comes from this land. Mm. Uh, the, your turkey, which is native to this land, your corn, your potatoes, if you use tomatoes, if, if anybody adds chili, we always have the beans because there were times when my mother's family uh, had nothing but beans. A very, very difficult, hard life, sometimes nearly destitute. Uh, I thought I was poor when I was growing up, but my mother was very, very poor. And so sometimes all they had was beans, so we always include the beans as part of our feast. And uh, and again, as I said, the education, we have all kinds of Indian people, sometimes from all over. Jimmy Blue Eyes comes from the Navajo Reservation. Uh, we have some people coming from Santa Cruz that come down, and so we have all these, you know, all this uh, this, this sharing of food and, and people and uh and so it's a good good thing because we have, we reaffirm those kinds of connections, and um, even though we give thanks every day, um, uh, this becomes kind of neat because people come from far away. And of course, we women. I mean, I love. This is my one time when I really love to cook, and uh, I you know I love that story you tell about that that one of the first Thanksgiving about the women, who oh, were the Algonquian yes. women. Tell yes. tell about that. Oh. Um. Yeah, one of the things, um, you know, in the imagery that people um, see about the quote-unquote the first Thanksgiving, which is actually the fifth <laughs> for the Algonquian people in the Northeast, is um, a lot of time people see the women standing behind the men while the men were eating at the table. And uh, culturally, uh, from an indigenous um, 
you know, from in the context from of an indigenous person, you know, that was traditional for the for the men to actually eat first and for the women to stand behind the men. But uh, one of the other things is a lot of the uh, Algonquian people and um, the first people in the Northeast is that they were matriarchal societies. Right. Very strong women. Yeah, yeah, very strong women. And the women actually own the land, the clan mothers. They actually made the decisions. Um, a lot of people, they don't um, realize that the Iroquois Confederacy was basically the, the template for the U.S. Constitution. Right. And in a lot of the, the meetings um, that took place is that even though the men spoke, it was actually the women who were whom, telling them what tell, to say. Telling them what to say, exactly. <laughs> and if the men spoke out of place, yeah. they were removed. Yeah. yeah, they still do. They still have incredible power, those uh, clan mothers. There's like 50 extended families uh, of the League of the Iroquois, and these clan mothers are, they choose the men. They choose. It took them a long time to choose this last Tadudaho, when Lian Shenandoah died. And so it took them a while, and I, um, I can't remember the man's name right now, but he was uh, a man in his 50s, and the women uh, took a long time to decide who should, because he's one of the principal chiefs. And um, apparently he's doing a good job because if he wasn't, he would have been fired a long time ago by the women. That's the kind of power that they had. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, anthropologists or people who would be looking at old documents that would state that women stood behind the men would not know what a powerful uh, 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 woman-centered society uh, these people were because they would assume that the woman was sort of subservient and standing back behind the man. But they were uh, matriarchal. Uh, matrilineal, who you were, your place in, in, in this their societies uh, came through your mother. Uh, matrilocal, so that if the man, you know, when when they um, when they became um, I, don't, I don't know, say husband wife, but when they got together to to uh, to come to start their own household, the man would go to the woman's. So matrilocal in that way, so very woman centered, and so uh, you know, just strong women. Yeah, people people don't see that, and and um, you know, for the uh, Calvinists, the Puritans, and the early colonizers, they were you know patriarchal societies. So for them, um, they saw the men sitting down at the table reinforcing their European values, when in actuality it was reinforcing indigenous cultural values. You know, uh, I love the story about where uh, the Cherokee had gone to meet with a, a contingent, uh, a group of military people who were coming to talk because it were possibly they would end up having to go to war, one of the negotiations. And they, the Cherokee uh, men brought along their beloved woman, very wise woman, very respected. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and the women brought many of these strong women leaders with them because they were also uh, a, a woman-centered society. And so when they saw these military men from the United States, uh, and they said, well, where are your women? And they, then, of course, you know, the patriarchal U.S. military, like, what do you mean, where's our women, you know? Well, where are your women? I mean, how can you get together and discuss going to war where possibly all these young men will be killed? You know, all these fathers and uncles and brothers and sons will be killed and not have your women here to discuss this, you know? Like, where are your women? And uh, so I love that, love that, love that question that they pose to them. Where are your women? How can you discuss, you know, life and death issues without your women there? So that's, uh, and, and that's pretty much how it is today, you know. Very much uh, like yourself. 
the women, uh, an indigenous uh, woman out there in the community, leading the community, working with the Chumash community, working with the Tongva community, working with all First Peoples, um, you know, recognizing no borders. So yes, very strong women, and um, and women do get um, underrated in their in terms of their value and their contribution, you know, in the Indian community. And um, unfortunately, um, you know, these images that get portrayed of Thanksgiving tend to reinforce that. And and it's interesting. I think I know more women. Uh, uh, teachers and scholars out there working in the community than I do, you know, males. Not that I'm uh, putting the <laughs> men down, but um. yeah, uh, uh, there are um, strong women out there. And yet, um, as I teach at the university and often have women's studies uh, students take my classes, uh, they don't seem to understand how we view ourselves because. Uh, in fact, I've got to go give a lecture in a little while to about some of the women, and they said uh, that as nat- we are Native American women first. We're Native American first. And that any of the issues that maybe some feminists, uh, you know, are still uh, struggling with, uh, uh, you know, ours has to do with uh, decolonization. It has to do with uh, well-being um, in, in every aspect of every man, woman, and child of our uh, communities. So, uh, you know, so that, um, so that if you see strong women there. It is not women with sort of this radical feminist ideas that they've got to get out there and do everything. It's it's women with this deep, deep love for our communities uh, and for our men. Uh, because as, as have happened with other people of color, when our men's backs would be broken or our men uh, would be hung, you know, the largest mass execution was of our, so many of our men. Uh, 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 however it happened to be, uh, I think that because the the U.S. Uh, uh, col- the, the European colonists that came here because they were patriarchal, they overlooked one of the most powerful um, uh, centers of our societies, and that was our women, uh, because they would take their um, uh, you know take it out on our men, and so uh, so they overlooked because of their uh, uh, the way that they viewed women, they overlooked our women. And in a way, that was uh, sort of a good thing because then we continue to be culture bearers and centers of strength and uh, continuity in our communities when our men were out there, you know. So uh, it's with great love and respect for our men. And uh, and most women that I know, in other words, we, we don't consider ourselves feminists. Uh, we, we, are, we are first and foremost Native peoples and, uh, and our concern is for our, our whole community. So that's it's a different kind of strength, I think, that you see in, in, in our in our women. That and the the notion of um, in terms of uh, Indian women's um, relationship with men uh, in a cultural context is that idea of balance. That balance in uh, both genders uh, sustaining their role, you know, within their their culture, you know, whatever First Nation you're from. Um, sustaining, you know, traditional roles out there in the larger Indian community as well. And a lot of times um, folks just don't see that. And, um, 
you know, there's a perception of, you know, the men, you know, again, going back to the Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner, you know, it's the, you know, the patriarchal, you know, that, you know, Eurocentric values that the men have yeah. to be the leaders. And You know, I, and I, I used this example uh, years ago when, you know, smoking was still supposed to be some, a good thing uh, <laughs> to be, you know, all, uh, but anyway, they, they had a Virginia Slims uh, commercial mm -hmm. where they had the, uh, they showed women in different, you know, forms of drudgery and just really subservient and down. And one of the images was of a Native woman grinding corn, it looked like. Or she could have been gr grinding acorn for all I know. But she was out there, and, and then and then so they see this woman, Native woman, as drudge image, right? And then next you see a liberated woman, you know, with her cigarette in her hand, and she's like, free, liberated, you know? But uh, again, they were using that old stereotype of, of Native woman as drudge. Yeah. This interest now actually comes from uh, Ivy Lee, who kind of the first grandfather of the public relations industry, and um, he went on to be followed um, and kind of really established, um, you know, the public relations industry, Edward Bernays, uh, and uh, both are considered um, basically the grandfathers of propaganda and creating, you know, I tend to think of propaganda synonymous with uh, myths when applied to Indian people. So I think it's rather ironic you you bring up the you know the lucky stripes uh, advertising campaign and that smoking's supposed to symbolize women's liberation and their right to you know to smoke you know smoking was framed then as a right. What I'd like to do is uh, talk go back to uh, the foods you mentioned the foods that were eaten that we eat at Thanksgiving and the foods that are um, indigenous to this land You're and. Yeah. Yeah, pumpkin, the sweet potato, the turkey, all those things that, um, you know, most families will eat uh, right. on Thanksgiving right. Day. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with longtime indigenous scholar, activist, cultural bearer, and elder Georgiana Sanchez from the Shumash Nation on this National Day of Mourning and dismantling the mythology surrounding the Thanksgiving Day holiday. And now back to the interview. And I don't know how aware they are, because if you, when you think potato, they're thinking, oh, from Ireland, right? right. But, of course, it came from uh, here in these Americas, and uh, particularly in South America, all the different varieties of potatoes that they had. And uh, were probably the first people ever to freeze-dry, you know, potatoes. They'd go out there and freeze them and then press all the water out and then save these dried little potatoes for later on and, you know, to be pop in their stews and things so uh yes you know so everything when when you think about your traditional thanksgiving dinner all of those um all of that bounty uh comes from these uh, these americas look at the big one across the sea i'm sure that you'll agree there's mean things happening in this world I ain't got a crying time I'm that way all the time There's mean things happening in this world There's mean things happening in this world Everything 
Houston. George Tink Tinker is from the Osage Nation and is professor of American Indian cultures and religious traditions at Illiff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He speaks on the federally sanctioned holiday, the Thanksgiving Day holiday, as a form of state-sponsored hate speech. This thing that the United States calls Thanksgiving Day is the perfect holiday to celebrate white supremacy. I I need to unpack that, I suppose, but I want to say it's a more powerful white supremacist holiday than, than even Columbus Day is, in part because it's much more subtle. White Americans might say, well, Columbus Day, of course, we can see why Indians think uh, that that's a celebration of genocide and an elevation of white supremacy. But they think of Thanksgiving Day as kind of an innocent, innocuous holiday uh, just to uh, eat turkey and, and express some sentiments of Thanksgiving. I want to say that it's a perfect holiday for reinforcing the myth of American innocence, what psychologist Rollo May called uh, uh, nearly 40 years ago America's pseudo-innocence. In that sense, it's a perfect uh, holiday for concealing America's history of violence from itself. Now, by white supremacy... Uh, I don't mean the skinhead bigotry attitude of supremacy. What I mean is the everyday sort of white privileging that all white Americans enjoy all the time. It just gets institutionalized in holidays uh, like Thanksgiving. And I suspect that uh, in this holiday that, 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 that permits and even enhances white Americans' sense of denial it shows up that way even in in the comic strips. Thanksgiving has become a celebration of white generosity and white giving to their family and friends instead of the original Thanksgiving, which was a celebration of Indian generosity and the survival of white immigrants through the first uh, their first winter uh, in North America. And if you look at comic strips, uh, look at them on Thursday. There should be plenty of them uh, in the newspapers. The comic strips put it just the other way. They reverse it. In the comic strips, whatever the punchline is, the pilgrims are always feeding the Indian. So I guess when you ask me what's my immediate thought when I think of Thanksgiving, um, my response is to, to all my students, to my colleagues where I teach, Thursday's going to be a work day for me. I'll be at my desk. Tink, when you think of this um, Indian generosity and white survival, what you put it at versus the myth and institutional racism and this whole notion of white generosity and white giving, how did it get that way? Well, from the very beginning, Europeans saw themselves as superior to indigenous people on this continent. Even though the Pawtuckets helped the pilgrims of Plymouth survive, the pilgrims of Plymouth were sure that they were superior to the Indians 
and that the Indians were mere primitive savages. In the course of establishing their beachhead in the Americas, whether it was at Roanoke in Virginia, uh, you know, at, at Plymouth or in Boston, Americans, uh, you know, the, the Europeans from the very beginning, used violence as their principal means for adjudicating land ownership. That continues right up to the massacre of uh, Bigfoot's band at, uh, at Wounded Knee in 1890. But white folks are Christians. As Christians, they have a need to see themselves in some kind of relationship with their deity that absolves them of sin, gives them forgiveness of sins, it's hard to celebrate the forgiveness of sins when you're living with the weight of all this violence that has been perpetrated in the, uh, by themselves in the conquest of the continent. And, and one of the best strategies for doing that is to engage in what psychologists call denial. And you can engage in denial in part by running the story backwards and putting Europeans in the driver's seat and showing... American white innocence at every, you know, every step of the way. So you have scholars writing these books talking about uh, American Indians committing genocide against one another to excuse the real genocide, which was perpetrated by their ancestors. Well, I teach at a Christian school, you know, a graduate school of theology. And in Christian circles, notions of praise and thanksgiving are an important part of you know, their liturgical expression. And I, I generally upset students a bit when I tell them American Indians don't have any history of ceremonies of praise. We didn't have a relationship with a deity that seemed to expect us to respond with praise. We don't have an understanding of the sacred other as in need of human praise. Yet every American Indian people I've ever looked at or spent time with in this hemisphere, North or South America, Central America, all have ceremonies of thanksgiving. It's a critical part of our own self-identity to be walking this earth in a posture of gratitude every day. Philip Deere used to talk about that, the Muscogee medicine man uh, who, who was a spiritual advisor to American Indian movement back in the 70s and 80s. Indian people walking through their village in the middle of the day and seeing their shadow on the ground and being reminded by seeing their shadow to turn around and give thanks to the Creator for life itself. Every tribe has a particular ceremony during the year that might be called uh, a ceremony of saying thank you. For Osages, my tribe, that ceremony came right after the spring equinox at the beginning of the planting season. You know, there were celebrations also, as you said, at harvest time because you can't take the life of a plant, take its fruit, you can't pick the corn without being in a relationship with the life represented by corn. So there have to be ceremonies and ceremonies of thanksgiving 
in order to maintain that relationship with the source of human sustenance uh, that's represented by corn. Every time there's a buffalo hunt or a hunt of any kind, Osage has had a ceremony uh, that concluded the hunt uh, that, that gave you know re- said thank you back to the buffalo uh, for the lives that, uh, that, that that they sacrificed in order to keep Osages alive. The moment of silence is over. And that was longtime indigenous activist, scholar, and elder George Tink Tinker from the Osage Nation speaking on this National Day of Mourning regarding the mythology of the Thanksgiving Day holiday and how it embodies or includes acts of settler colonial violence. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to both of our indigenous elders, Georgiana Sanchez from the Chumash Nation and George Tink Tinker from the Osage Nation. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Buffy St. Marie, Blackfire, and American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.